to the Catholics. Good afternoon, everybody, and a very warm welcome uh, to this event. Um, I'm Robin Marsak, I'm director of the Scottish Poetry Library, and thank you very much for bearing with the change of venue. Though, as lovely as the Poetry Library is, somehow, you can look out the window here, you can see the treetops, you can hear the seagulls, and it seems entirely appropriate to this book. I can't speak too highly of this book, Word Enough in Time, and I know that you're going to so much enjoy hearing Christian and the opportunity to ask her some questions after Bill has asked her some questions. It seems to me the book that we really need in these times, and Christian herself says, walking, talking, reading, drawing, praying, telling stories, the nourishment is there, as close as our own breath. But it's very hard for us, isn't it, to find the time to take that nourishment. And I, it felt like a parable to me coming across today in the train from Glasgow, <laughs> which I can't tell you what it was like. It was an inferno, really, uh, getting a nod from the front row, uh, because it was football, it was the festival. And I thought, I'll never settle down to this book. And I sat there, and I opened it up at random. I've already read it. And I opened it up at random. And I got to Linlithgow, and I realized that there was a group of very loud young women talking all the way up and down the aisle where they were standing. And I simply hadn't noticed them because of the power of this book. And it's a very extraordinary thing to be able to do that. So we're delighted that you should be here today to share that with us. And delighted that Bill, who's going to uh, chair the conversation, um, Bill will be known to some of you as a member of the Council of, uh, Ge of Geopoetics. Sorry. Geopoetics. Geopoetics. Um, and he's going to put some leading questions, after which there'll be a chance for you also to ask questions. So will you join me in welcoming Christian McEwen back home? <laughs> Faces from the deep past, from the me from the recent past, and strangers yet to be friends. It's lovely. Thank you. In terms of just making this happen, many thanks to Nori Bissell here. Many thanks to Bill Eddy. Many thanks to Robin Marsat and to the Scottish Poetry Library for making this happen, and to Tessa for putting me up. Um, always an important thing. So I'm going to read for about half an hour little sections from this book, and then Bill Eddy's going to ask me some very pointed questions. And please tell me at the back if you can't hear, because we can shut one of these windows. So just a tiny introduction. This book, there's a seat up there if you'd like it. Uh, there's a green seat up here, and I think one over there. Okay, great. This book is divided into 12 chapters on things like walking and talking and dreaming and drawing. And the one I'm going to start from re by reading from is about writing. It's called The Feast of Words. And this is a little section called I Lawn Sea. And it 
it's really um, a thanks to my mother who's in the audience. The summer I was nine, my family stayed for two weeks on Ilonsi, a tidal island off the coast of Skye. It was a beautiful windswept place with a tall whitewashed lighthouse, two converted cottages, and a walled garden filled with brambles and wild roses. Soon after we arrived, our mother presented each of us with a cardboard-covered scrapbook filled with cloudy grey-blue pages. You can write in, it, in this, she said, or draw, or stick in postcards. I'll show you how to press some flowers if you'd like. The scrapbook has survived, and I turn its pages slowly, smiling at the shriveled corpses of thrift and English stonecrop, ragged robin, tormentil, each one carefully labelled in an earnest, girlish hand. There are postcards, too, bought with my weekly pocket money, postcards of Ilaunsi and Skye and the ferry we came in, plus a solitary highland cow standing stolid and melancholy against a luridly tinted meadow. We had seen Highland cattle on our long drive from the borders, our first ever. Ilaunsi was a lot of firsts for me, and I tried valiantly to contain it, to pick it, count it, catalogue, record. Exasperated by my clumsy artwork, I pestered my father to draw a lobster for me, which he did skillfully, and then a crab in swift electric green. Meanwhile, I did my best to keep track of everything I thought might be important. The 29 cars lined up ahead of us as we waited for the ferry, the 12 waterfalls we counted on the way back. I wrote about my brother and sisters and the games we played, how we'd made a house among the rocks, and kept two shops where we sold stones and shells and coloured glass. How my sister had found a sea urchin, and it was quite rare. How she'd also found a starfish and a baby prawn. I took my crayons and made a picture of the rock pool with its bulgy pink sea anemones and sea urchins and crabs, titling it in bright fluorescent letters, A Rock Pool by the Sea. I never thought it would be so nice, I wrote, but it was lovely. Without the scrapbook, I would remember none of this. I would have forgotten the hermit crabs with their strange bunched claws and the bits of broken china we found washed up on the strand, water thumbed and fumbled, their edges soft as chalk. I would have no record of the old boat we liked to play in or the mussel soup my mother made with its tiny iridescent greyish pearls. People say that a child comes into his or her identity at eight or maybe nine. As for me, I know exactly when it happened. I was standing in the garden one windy afternoon, alive to everything I saw around me. The big lumbering sheep with their dung-encrusted tails, the rush and thrust of the encroaching sea, the seagulls crying just above my head. I had a pocket full of sea glass and coloured shells, and, as I, was, and I was as happy as I've ever been, before or since. So the act of taking time to write, to create a memory for yourself, very different from, I had a great time when we went to Wales. The, the specifics are retained. It's a lovely thing to give to a child, just a scrapbook, just, just a, a few words of encouragement. This is a chapter from, a section from a chapter on reading, and the chapter is called The Intensest Rendezvous. And it's about some writers um, 
most of them American, and how they fell in love with words. It's called Pond Ripple Wordsworth. And there's a seat right there if you'd like it. Um, and Stanley Kunitz is an American poet who died aged more than 100. He literally, I think he was like 100 and a half when he died. He came to read at, at, at Smith College in Northampton, Mass, where I live, and he got a standing ovation, aged 99 and a half. And he was so delighted with himself, he'd never had such a crowd, he said. When Stanley Kunitz was a little boy, he was in love with words, their sound and resonance. Each day he would search the family dictionary for gorgeous words, then run outside and shout them into the trees. I considered it my duty to give my new words to the elements, to scatter him. To scatter them, that's what he said. The, word, the woods were for him the perfect audience. When Adrian Rich was four or five years old, her father asked her to copy a few lines of poetry every day. A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. The lines were intended as a lesson in handwriting. But what stayed with her was the rhythmic power of the words. It was that rhythm meshed with language which got her started as a poet. Later she read Keats and Blake on her own account. But at the beginning, poetry was for her a physical thing, an elemental force that was with her, like the wind at her back as she ran across a field. Such practices have fallen out of fashion in recent years. Few children now copy poems in their best, most elegant handwriting. It is the rare adult who still keeps a commonplace book to record her favorite quotations. Instead, we have scanners and digital printers, a brand new copy shop in every corner. Poems may be preserved like this, but they're not necessarily remembered. They've been seen by the eyes, but they have not been enlivened by their passage through breath and body and working hand. In ancient China, when someone studied calligraphy, he did not simply copy the original. Instead, he spread out the scroll against the wall and stared at it for a long time. Only when he had, as it were, incorporated it completely did he finally pick up his brush and begin to work. Robert Pinsky suggests that young writers should apprentice themselves in a similar way to the poets they admire, not by buying every copy of their books or by attending every reading, but by typing out their poems for themselves, or even better, by copying them out longhand. This, he feels, will teach them what a poem is made of, word and breath and line and image, as nothing else can do. The artist Paulus Berenson often practices Lectio Divina, which he defines as reading any book as if it were the book. When he first encountered David Abrams' book, The Spell of the Sensuous, he conceived a tremendous admiration for its last chapter, The Forgetting and Remembering of the Air. Since Berenson is himself a practicing bookmaker, he made a special journal to contain it, cutting windows on the left side and gluing Abram's pages into them. Then he rewrote the chapter very slowly, defining the words, looking them up in the dictionary, and rephrasing them in his own language. So it got into my body. On the right-hand page, he would doodle in response to Abram's text. Doodling has been an incredible teacher for me. The slower I doodle, the more story rises out of it, always. 
Poems inspire other poems. Words give birth to words, sometimes in the most unlikely way. Jimmy Santiago Baca grew up poor, taught to despise his own language. In jail at 20, he stole a textbook from a desk attendant and read it at night under the covers. And this is quoting Jimmy Santiago Baca, a uh, Hispanic poet in, in the US. Slowly, I enunciated the words, pond, ripple. Even as I tried to convince myself that I was merely curious, I became so absorbed in how the sounds created music in me and happiness, I forgot where I was. I stumblingly repeated the author's name as I fell asleep, saying it over and over in the dark. Words were. Words were. Days later, with a stub pencil I whittled sharp with my teeth, I propped a red chief notebook on my knees and wrote my first poem. From that moment, a hunger for poetry possessed me. The next uh, three more little sections, and the next one is from a, set, a chapter called The Space Between, which is really about pausing and about the power of the white space between the words, the silence between the sounds, the sky above the city, um, how we tend mostly to honour the action and not the pause before the action. And this is a little section on multitasking, which is a very seductive idea and one that in fact most of us cannot accomplish with efficiency, although we believe that we can. While I was working on this book, I spent two months at the McDowell Colony, an artist retreat centre in Peterborough, New Hampshire. I had the use of a live-in studio with bedroom, bathroom, kitchen, and spacious study, looking out into the snowy woods. Each day was mine to do with as I wished. Lunch was delivered in a basket to my door. At six o'clock, I walked over to the main house for a convivial supper with the other residents. I loved everything about McDowell, except for one, the invasion of the laptops. In the main hall with its fireplace and three comfortable sofas, people sat side by side, staring at their shimmering silver screens. There were two more sofas over by the door, both similarly occupied. A small table with portable phone provided further outlets, and a giant computer squatted opposite, always open and available, its broad face bright with icons like tiny, vivid toys. I came to Colony Hall to read the newspapers and to collect my mail. After a long day alone at the desk, I would have welcomed a word or two of conversation. But my comrades, for the most part, were preoccupied. They were checking their email. They were reading the news online. Hi, someone would say absently, without looking up or shifting her computer case from the sofa next to her. She thought she was being friendly. Surely it was possible to talk to her boyfriend in Seattle and to me as well, but no. Multitasking is going to slow you down, increasing the chances of mistakes, said David E. Mayer, director of the Brain Cognition and Action Laboratory at the University of Michigan in a recent article in the New York Times. Other writers and theorists concur. Yes, there is an adrenaline rush of impetus and excitement, at least at the beginning but only rarely can it be sustained. For almost all of us, competence diminishes with each additional task. 
The human brain has 100 billion neurons and hundreds of trillions of synaptic connections. But that doesn't mean that we can necessarily concentrate on two different things at once. Multitasking is a term drawn from computer technology. It's what a computer does in the tiny flickers of time between keystrokes. Not all machines are equally sophisticated. But some can, in fact, do several things at once, a skill called parallel processing. And increasingly, human beings have convinced ourselves that we can do the same. It is true that 2.5% of the population are what is called supertaskers. They really can drive a truck and talk on the phone at the same time without any noticeable decline in their performance. But 2% is only 1 in 40. For most of us, multitasking is just another word for distraction and inefficiency. You see it all the time, says writer Howard Mansfield. How many tasks, how many multitasks, how many things can you do at once? How many bits of information? How much data? And that's just accelerating. It's as if taking things more slowly had somehow become suspect. And I'm quoting Howard again. You don't even realize what a pace you're going at after a while. It affects people's quality of attention. It affects their dreams. And I think it affects that quiet, deep space where people have to maintain solitude or their self or their soul, whatever you want to call it. That is occupied. And I think that's when people start going a little wacko. <laughs> Howard is a lovely guy. He's a, a, a historian in uh, New Hampshire, in, in New England. And he has quite a quiet life. So he says that he can spend as much time writing as he does. Two more sections. This one is called A Little Piece of Sponge. The last few years have produced a surge of thoughtful books attempting to tackle that wackiness. Among them, Maggie Jackson's Distracted, Nicholas Carr's The Shallows, and William Power's Hamlet's Blackberry. All three pay tribute to the pleasures and efficiencies of the new media, while at the same time recognizing that something crucial is being lost to us. What Powers describes the quiet, spacious place where the mind can wander free. Some of our difficulties arise from the sheer multiplicity of the data we now have to process. As Gertrude Stein wonderfully said, everybody gets so much information all day long that they lose their common sense. <laughs> But the waterfall of data is the least of it. What really matters is the shaping power of the technology itself. The human brain is astonishingly plastic, a fact that can give us tremendous joy, as when we finally learn to ice skate in our 50s. And it can also be a genuine liability, as when we give, our, give ourselves over, heart and soul, body and spirit, to the dazzling authority of our screens. As the internet comes to seem increasingly indispensable, occupying the place of our local cinema, our research library, our post office and radio and daily newspaper, it begins to alter the very character of our minds. Nicholas Carr explains, if knowing what we know today about the brain's plasticity, you were to set out to invent a medium that would rewire our mental circuits as quickly and thoroughly as possible, you would probably end up designing something that looks and works a lot like the internet. The internet encourages us to do everything at the top possible speed, and at the same time, to keep on changing focus, 
As Carr says, it is by its very nature an interruption machine. We glide and swoop for small tidbits of information and then speed off again across the ether. Once interrupted, most of us take about 25 minutes to return to our original point of focus, usually attempting at least two other work projects en route. No surprise that as we skim and scroll and surf, our patience and concentration should diminish. What is at issue here is the nature of memory itself. Computer memory is literal and predictable. It does not alter over time. Human memory is considerably more fluid. We need time to muse and dream, to mull, to ruminate, to sort through our own insights and associations. In the words of the philosopher William James, the connecting is the thinking. Without space for that free-floating free, free receptivity, short-term, or primary memory, is not transformed into the long-term or secondary kind. Our memories are not consolidated. We mislay the tiny details of our lived experience, the originality and satisfaction of our own opinions. I experienced this for myself in May 1980 when my father died unexpectedly of a heart attack. I was living in California at the time. Hurled back across the Atlantic for the funeral, beset by immediate practical necessities, inundated by family stories, the few weeks prior to his death melted away like the morning dew. I still don't remember much about that particular spring. My psychic landscape was drenched and splintered, ravaged, rearranged. The short-term memories never did take root. We need, wherever possible, a space between, a gap between ourselves and our technology, in which we can, quite literally, recover our poor selves. Hamlet's Blackberry was the aid memoir or seed book of the day, made of specially coated paper or parchment that could be wiped clean after use. Our minds and psyches also benefit from such erasures. William Powers described just such a set of tables in the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington on display along with their original instructions. And it's in Elizabethan language. To make clean your tables when they are written on, Take a little piece of sponge. So this is the last section um, about uh, the space between, and it's mostly about the Carthusians, and it's called Integrate Silence. Back in 1948, the Swiss writer Max Picard published a small book called The World of Silence. For him, silence was not merely negative, not the mere absence of speech. Rather, it was a complete world in and of itself. It made things whole again, gave them some of its own holy uselessness. And I'm quoting Picard here, for that is what silence itself is, holy uselessness. And that holy is with an H and not a W. Without a steady background of silence, it can be difficult, literally, to hear oneself think. Just as a room can be both empty and alive, so silence too can be restorative, a source of calm and clarity and even wisdom. That we know this on some level and deeply hunger for it was shown by the reception given to Into Great Silence, a documentary about Carthusian monks, which opened in New York City in the spring of 2007. Scheduled to run for only two weeks, the show was extended indefinitely. 
Paris New Yorkers lined up to watch the monks as they went about their daily lives, chanting, praying, gardening, chopping vegetables. The Carthusian order was founded by St. Bruno in 1084 at what is now the monastery of La Grande Chartreuse and includes both choir monks and lay brothers. All live lives of silence, speaking only when truly necessary and for a few hours recreationally every Monday. When filmmaker Philip Groening approached them in 1984, asking if he might make the documentary, they asked for time to consider his request. Sixteen years later, <laughs> they called him back to say yes. The anecdote has the makings of its own New Yorker cartoon. And it is true that the monks are not without humor. One of my favorite scenes shows them trudging up a snowy hill outside the monastery, then sliding back down by one, their long robes billowing, the sky echoing with their laughter. But there is a seriousness, too, derived in part from that long silence. In the young monk reading his daily portion of scripture, the aged tailor smoothing the white cloth as he cuts out a robe, the cobbler gluing a new sole onto a heavy work boot and nailing it firmly down. For a moment, as they acknowledge the camera, it's as if the woman in a Vermeer painting had suddenly set down her jug or folded up the letter she was reading and turned to glance at you, the light still flickering on the wall behind. I watched the film on a rainy Thursday afternoon with an audience of perhaps 30 other people. Most of us came alone and sat scattered in twos and threes along the empty rows, each preoccupied with our separate lives. But by the time the film had ended, something had changed. We had become, however briefly, a community, united by the silence and the long hours of attentive looking, as if something of the monk's tranquility had entered us as well. The light trembled on the surface of the holy water stoop and slowly returned to stillness. A bell rang out across the empty sky. You seek me, and you shall find me. Because you seek me with your heart, I will let myself be found. Thank you. So now the lady and I are going to engage in a conversation, and I hope that little machine just fell on the floor, so I hope it didn't get hurt. And Bill has lots of important questions. And then there will be questions from the audience also, or time for that. Expecting Bill Audi. <laughs> okay. Can I just say, on behalf of the Scottish Centre for Geopoetics uh, to Christian, to, to thank you for coming along today to speak to us. And uh, I hope you enjoy the questions. It's a great joy. It's a great pleasure. Okay. In your book, uh, Christian, um, there's no specific mention of geopoetics, um, yet some of us in the Scottish Centre for Geopoetics actually uh, feel that your book is very relevant to their lives. Um, 
So this afternoon I would actually like to bias the conversation towards geopoetics, if I may. I'll do my best. Okay. In your early mature years in London and New York, um, you seem to have been a, a bit of a rebel. Um, in those days then, did you feel a need to slow down? Or is it something that has developed within you over the years? I think I was, when I was a little girl, I was what was called a clever girl. And I had a, a mind that went chup, 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 chup like that. But I also grew up in the country, and I would go off for long walks across the moors and go up climbing trees and explore. And in a sense, I got the balance then of the buzz, buzzing mind and the, and the slowness. I remember when I was at college once realizing that compared to all the London students, I remember saying to myself, inside I am slow. And it's taken a while to find a way to braid the two it's the fast and the slow together, but I, I think that was there from fairly early on. But do you, do you feel that perhaps in your later years a distinct difference then between now and your earlier years in terms of you know your attitude towards slowing down? Is it something definite that you've been aware of then, this need to slow down then? I think living in America and coming from Scotland has made me very conscious of the contrast between the States and here. And even now, I would say the States moves at 90 miles an hour down the freeway compared to maybe 75 miles an hour down the freeway here. Um, and so some of my task as a teacher there has been to import some of what I remember from childhood to my students. In a sense, give them what I, I wasn't given myself as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a student. And I, 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 I do feel passionate about it because I think people are living at a speed which is dangerous to their well-being, let alone the issue of creativity. I mean, there's a level of stress, there's heart attacks, there's all sorts of illnesses and, and uh, troubles that come along with, with living life in, in the fast lane. Modern life has been described in terms of... Um the Red Queen hypothesis, uh, where one has to run faster and faster in order to simply stand still. Um, and yet, when I, when I look around, actually, particularly at young people, uh, I see that, that perhaps slowing down is not to their taste, and that they actually enjoy life in the fast lane. Um, so why do you think that slowing down is beneficial? You've mentioned several things, actually, you know, in your readings from the book, but can you, can you sum it up, perhaps, in perhaps a few sentences as to why you really think that slowing down is beneficial to, to everyone? I think it's a pleasure in and of itself. I mean, the number of people who just said, oh, <laughs> you know, they, they, would, they would rather have time and slowness than they would have an, another jump in their paycheck, in some cases. Um, and of course, in terms of the book, it's, I see it as a, as a doorway to creative practice. Um, I copied this little quotation from Russell Hoban because I thought it was appropriate to that. Um, it's from a book called Amaryllis Night and Day. And he says, there are many talented people who will never become painters, writers, or composers. The talent is in them, but not the empty spaces where art happens. And, I, and slowing down is what you, you have to stop before you can notice the sky to paint it or n 
ha have in engaged with the memory to write your poem about it or really to, to, to make anything new. Otherwise, you just become subject to the input that is coming at you. So it's a slightly garbled answer, but that, that's what I would say. How much do you, do you think that the, the, the pace of modern life is, is due to technology? Um, uh, or do you think, for example, um, the origins of um, our hectic pace lies much deeper? Uh, for example, the rise of secularism or uh, perhaps the loss of something such as a sense of being in the world? Um, do you see slowing down um, as a as a means of returning to a perceived order in the world, um, for example, as tra traditionally been defined by by religion, for example? Well, I think a religion that that, that encourages a Sabbath, as you know, the traditional Jewish religion does, and as many Christian religions, if you if you use Sunday in the way that it was. Uh, originally expected to be used, you would naturally have a pause every seven days. Um, that said, my friend, the Scottish poet Alistair Reid, said Sunday should be a yes day, not a no day. <laughs> and I know that some Sundays in the deep past, my gra own grandfather grew up in a Methodist household, which was where Sunday was a pretty pinched kind of a day. You know, right. you couldn't play toys, read, or yeah. goodness what else. Um, but I don't. Say, tell me the question again, because I'm not sure I'm answering <laughs> do you, do correctly. Do you see slowing down um, as a, a way of returning to a perceived order, something that that was uh, intrinsic in our lives in the past? You, I mean, you mentioned the yeah. Sunday as a way of slowing down, but perhaps in a negative way. So do you see slowing down then more as a return to some sort of order in the world then? Do you see modern life as chaotic, in a sense, and a, a breakdown of order in society? I, I think I tend to go more with the technology and the power of the technology and that notion of entrainment, which is basically that you fall into the rhythm of whomever you're speaking to. You and I would fall into a pattern of, of, of discourse if, uh, in, uh, if we kept talking. And what people do instead is, of talking to each other and falling into a human rhythm is they fall into the rhythm of the machine. And the machine is necessarily faster than they are. Mm -hmm. And so there's a kind of panting anxiety that is generated. Yes. Um, I'm not so sure that, it, that looking back gives you a, a kind of Eden of, of sufficient slowness. I mean, people worked very, very hard in the old days. Mm -hmm. uh, you think of the Industrial Revolution and children yes. working, you know, 12 and 14 hour days in the coal mines and that sort of thing. So it's easy to idealize a slow past, I guess. Do you see it perhaps also as a, perhaps a breakdown of, um, say, values, uh, family values? Perhaps, say, um, decades ago, uh, family values seemed to be more important, the cohesion of the family unit, etc. Do you see all these things as contributing to, to uh, speeding up? Well, I think there's an American writer called Sherry Turkle, and she wrote a book called Alone Together. And it describes what you sometimes see in the street where, 
you know, you go, you see in a cafe and the family has gone out for the day, but the father is talking on the cell phone and the mother is doing some, with some little gadget and the child is playing with an, yet another gadget. And if you want to t describe that in terms of breakdown of family values, I think, you, you know, people are not with each other. Mm -hmm. They're in their individual yes. machine world. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that's one, one version of, what that, of that, I think. How, how do you uh, feel about the f fast talking? And this is something I experienced in, in America lately myself, that, uh, that, that people were overtly, they seemed interested in who you are and what you're, what you're about, but they were talking at such a speed that I got the impression that they weren't really listening at all. Do, do you think this is a, a, a growing problem in in modern Western societies? Well, there are statistics about how much faster politicians talk now than they did in the mm -hmm. 60s. I mean, the speed literally has increased. Right. Um, they also talk about children who, whose attention cannot be held by the teacher because the teacher, she or he, is talking too slowly yeah. for the child's mind. The child wants the, the teacher to talk as fast as yeah. the little gizmo on the screen and the, and the little piece of plastic and the teacher can't keep up with the piece of plastic. Um, so I think that's a real issue. And then the other statistic I wish to say is that one thing they've just, they've, they, they, they say recently is that college students have less empathy now than they did even 20 years ago. And they link that to the technologizing of the mind. Perhaps because they're not listening. And because they can friend and unfriend somebody on the screen without ha having any human consequences. Yeah. So, go back to your um, your career in America. Um, in a sense, you opted in. You adopted a peripatetic lifestyle. Um, you travelled across America teaching. Um, and I'm reminded of the statement by John Muir that uh, by going out is really a way of going in. Uh -huh. and so how true was that for you? I love that, and I love that quotation. And I would say going out is really a way of coming in for me if, I'm, if where I'm going out to is the garden or the hills or the river or whatever else. But when I had to get on an aeroplane to go and teach poetry in Las Vegas, I, wa I wasn't really thinking in terms of John Muir. <laughs> I was thinking in terms of paying the rent. Um, what, what that teaching did, though, was in a way, it was, I found it difficult and unpleasant, really. To tr what I was doing was I was teaching teachers to use poetry in the classroom, an intensive weekend work workshop format, and I would have to fly in on a Thursday or a Friday, teach the Friday night, all of Saturday, all of Sunday, and fly out again on the Monday. And, you know, poetry is a slow thing and trying to carry it, at s <laughs> trying, to, trying to encourage these very speedy teachers to, to love poetry when they were <laughs> like that uh, was, was quite a challenge. So in a way I have them to thank for writing the slowness book at all mm -hmm. because I tried to write that book in a way that they would be able to understand it and in a way I knew not who the enemy was, because they weren't the enemy, but I, I was meeting the culture through them and I was talking back to that culture. Okay, um, so if we can move sort of uh, psychologically away from Las Vegas and more towards Yosemite. Uh, All right. <laughs> um, 
the American poet Robinson Jeffers and his writing actually influenced Kenneth White. Um, he advocates that we turn outward to the vast life and inexhaustible beauty beyond humanity, which is an essential condition of freedom and of moral and vital sanity. And the appreciation and study of nature is important for many people drawn to geopoetics. Um, how much has the awareness and the appreciation of nature influenced your writing and your teaching? Well, I edited a book called The Alphabet of the Trees, A Guide to Nature Writing, which is in a way a kind of primer for children's level geopoetics. It's, there's one copy there's here. There's one copy here for sale. But it's about finding ways, using literature, using poetry to help the children think about the natural world and giving them writing assignments based on going out into the natural world. And I think of when I was down the road at the Scottish Poetry Library and we went we had some primary school children, we went on a little walk with notebooks in our hands up and down the Cannon Gate, and they would write down what they saw, you know, the leaves on the trees and the pigeons and the people crossing the road. And there was a, I have to tell this story, but there was <laughs> a washing line across the close, you know, one wee boy looks up, he said, Miss, can I write bra? There's <laughs> a bra dangling down. Um, but simply to give them the outside world in that very simple way and then to give them a form in which those noticings could be arranged. So it was a list poem, I think, or a question poem we then went back and wrote. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was lovely. Mm -hmm. That was lovely. Did you find that, find that teaching teenagers more difficult? Because I, I remember many years ago I, I had to take a, a bunch of teenagers to, uh, on a bird watching trip in Texas. Yeah. And it was the most difficult uh, yeah. trip I've ever had. They were, they were really concerned about themselves, yeah. and, and they weren't interested in American widgeon and cooked and whatever. And I was strutting forward, saying, "And here we are." Yeah. Yeah. And they were all looking at one another, looking into one another's eyes. Yeah, right, 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 right. I know. And it was important. So you found something. Well, it's interesting. I taught for a, a while at a place called the High School for Environmental Studies in New York City, and they were 10th graders, which is 15-year-olds. And they were from all over the Bronx, Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens, and from all different cultures. And often, even to get out of New York City was a massive... Uh, it was not what happened for them. But I remember one young girl saying to me, you know, she went out to visit a friend on Long Island and she saw the sunset there and she still was remembering that sunset. So in a way, the very paucity of experience gave her the gift of it more strongly. And one assignment I had was I brought in a whole box of stones and colored shells and things and I had them each have a stone. And we used a, a, a poem called Inside the Stone, where you look very closely at the stone and you sort of imagine an in, inner world. And the children drew around, the young people drew around the stone, and they really thought about it and meditated on it and made an imaginary world inside of it. And when I came up back to pick up the stones at the end of the session, please, Miss, can I, please, Miss McEwen, please, Miss Christian, can I keep the stone? You know, and it was heartbreaking in a way because they would not be able to go down into the garden and just pick up a stone. And when I tried to take them even to Central Park, the teachers wouldn't let me do that because it was against the law or they might fall down and break their legs or something. Um, so I felt that they were deprived of nature in certain ways and yet that they 
what little they had, they really cherished. Yeah. Do you think that's intrinsic in human behaviour? Do you think this um, affinity with nature is uh, um, perhaps innate behaviour? That we, we, there is something deep down within the human psyche that we recognise an affinity. I mean, uh, we are born of the world in a sense, and so we, we have inherited uh, eons and eons of, of history of mm. our relationship to the land. Do you think that maybe is something to do with it, or is it a cultural thing? Well, I think it's very helpful to have an adult mentor or a, an older brother or sister or somebody who sort of leads you out into it. Mm -hmm. Because I do know children in, in the city for whom nature was frightening. And indeed a poet friend of mine, when she grew up on Staten Island and when she was first out in just New York State, she came back saying, what is that thing over there on that stuff? And she didn't know the words. She didn't know, and you'd listen to her, you didn't know if she meant a cardinal on a mistletoe or a sheep in a field, or she had, she had no language. And one of the, this is a sidetrack, but the Oxford English Dictionary for Children recently took away a lot of the nature words in the dictionary and replaced them. So they replaced blackberry as in bramble with blackberry as in little gizmo. And they took away gerbil and they put in blog, you know. And, I mean, outrageous, really. Because you're taking away the, the lenses you need to see yeah. the world. And the number of children, of course, who can recognize business icons. Right. Uh, but they couldn't, they couldn't name a dozen plants right. in their neighborhood, yeah. for example. Yeah. So I see it as my business to point that out to the teachers mm -hmm. and to encourage, to, to give the children more words, mm -hmm. quite simply. Uh, many people, um, I believe, anyway, that, that in the postmodern world, they see nature as a social construction. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering how. How have the different attitudes um, um, to nature influenced your method of working, for example, if you compare, say, children in New York City with children um, in, uh, say, uh, indigenous cultures in mm -hmm. America, say, maybe in Arizona or mm -hmm. in, in the West? Have you, have you noticed any differences in how they perceive nature? I worked with a group of Native American children who came from a Mohawk uh, high school up in upstate New York and I did a little work, weekend workshop with them and I did notice that they were much, they'd grown up speaking Mohawk, was it was their first language, so they were native, native children and they were much more willing to attend to the task. And I remember seeing them all sitting under the tree with a little note each under his or her own tree or by his or her own stone, writing in their little notebooks and feeling utterly delighted at how ready they were to take the tuition. Um, but a lot of it depends on the socio-economic background of the children, the level of kindness of the teacher who's running their class. It's very difficult to generalize. I've had lovely kids in New York too. So, I mean, uh, if you were, say, teaching in indigenous North American children, we were actually in a very deprived situation. Yeah. So you wouldn't see that same affinity for nature there? Or, well, I saw or, this. Or did you, yeah? I saw, I mean, like the children who wanted the stones or the children who remembered the, the, the sunset or the one trip to Puerto Rico to meet the granny. Yeah. The deprivation gave them a clarity about what they'd mm -hmm. lost. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a difficult thing to generalize about. Yes, yes. Okay. 
Um, for me, uh, the, one of the essential components for the appreciation of nature is wonder and the imagination. Um, and I believe that if you have an infused sense of wonder, nature then no longer becomes a thing. It no longer becomes the other. It becomes a presence. And with that presence then your sense of time becomes altered. Then. So do you regard um, slowing down as a way of creating the time and the space to allow your imagination to flourish then? Well, I'm maybe more zen about it. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in the just looking and whether it's wonder that comes out at the far end or imagination or a story or sadness or a memory. I'm, I, that there's a moment of just stopping and paying attention. That would precede wonder or whatever else for me. Right, right. Yeah. So that moment of comprehension in a sense. Uh, yeah, contemplation, close looking, mm -hmm. attention, whatever word you yes, want to give uh -huh. it. Yeah. yeah, I'll get on to that just in a second, actually. So, I mean, how, how important then do you see wonder and the imagination then in, in your work? I, th I think it's it's not a word I would uh, I, it would, I would let somebody else name uh -huh. that use that word yeah. um, for whatever they arrived at yeah. as a, as a student. Uh -huh. um, for me, it's always just about telling the truth as clearly as I can. Yes. Goethe said that uh, if you have a sense of wonder, then that's all you need. Uh huh. I, I, for me, I suppose it's just a little, I would say curiosity, I curiosity. would say attention, I right. would say close looking. And imagination? I'm not sure. Uh, again, it feels, some, it, like, it feels like something you arrive at rather than something you start with. Mm -hmm. um, taking the time to do the noticing will lead you to imagination, maybe. That, that actually brings me to this question then, the ability to see uh -huh. um, and uh, to attend to the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, and Rilke described it as this thousandfold looking. Uh -huh. <laughs> and um, the late John O'Donoghue had uh, a wonderful phrase. Uh, he said, if you can attend with dignity at the threshold moment of experience, then what is returned to you is really amazing. And I interpret this as actually being equivalent to the Buddhist concept of mindfulness. Mm. Um, and in your book, you mention um, your leanings towards Buddhism, yeah. and, uh, and you've attended uh, several retreats. Right. Um, particularly the Vietnamese uh, Buddhist uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, how would you describe mindfulness, and how does this relate to slowing down? Well, mindfulness is an interesting word because it foregrounds the word mind, but in a way, it's mind emptiness. You know, you're you're, you're using your mind to be to be open to everything else than your mind, in a sense. You're you're. It's like you're putting a little line around the world and, and, and being present in that world. Uh, and I think Buddhism is very wise about slowing down. 
But in the larger thing is not so much slowing down as finding the right pace. That Italians have that wonderful phrase, tempo giusto, the right or the appropriate amount of time for each thing. And I wouldn't want to become the queen of slowness, but my family wouldn't let me. I mean, I'm, I'm way too impatient and cranky and moody and fast. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I try to walk my talk um, and I believe my talk. And I believe, that, I believe the importance of it, because our culture is tilted so radically in the opposite direction. Um, but I, I wrote that book because I needed it, apart from anything else. And also because I could see it was needed by, by other people too. Yeah. So do you see this um, um, idea of attending, attention, how, how important do you see that then? Hugely important, mm -hmm. hugely important. First, for the pleasure of doing the attending, and then again, you know, walk for the pleasure of walking and walk as a doorway to a poem that might be write, written about the walking. Um, and, and all the other, each of the other chapters, you could say the same thing. The, the slow action is a joy in and of itself, and it's a, an opportunity to move beyond that action into further, just being, 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 being joyfully alive. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, Peter Matheson and he was describing Zen uh, and he said the most important thing is attention, mm -hmm. attention, yeah. attention. Yeah. Yeah. I, think that, I think that is a very, very uh, important point I yeah. think, to make. And I found that personally in my own studies of uh, wildlife, birds and, and yeah. plants, this idea of attention yeah. Yeah. rather than the superficial looking. Some people regard um, nature as a manifestation of divine imminence. For example, in the works of Meister Eckhart. Right. And, and how do you see nature? Do you do you see uh, do you perceive a spirituality in nature? I sort of. Uh, I guess I keep them in two separate boxes, and I see them as as parallel stories. Uh, you know, I could describe myself as a pantheist, oh, yeah. but, I, but, but Buddhism doesn't believe in God per se. Um, so uh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not out to make an overarching schema into which everything can be fitted. You know, I'm, I'm really about trying to lay out stories where there are echoes between the stories and connections back and forth between them. So I wouldn't put it all in, in the holy box, as it were. It'd be interesting to have Kenneth White here, actually, <laughs> fly on the wall. Yeah, I'm sure he has something to say. <laughs> um, so, do you see anything, um, do you see any value then in regarding nature as divine? Uh, I'm not sure I do. You don't? Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I do. Okay. It, we think of the continued uh, usurping of the Earth's resources then by humans, and this, for many people, a perceived loss of world then. Um, do you see a, a need for a re-enchantment of nature? Do you think that nature has become disenchanted by the modern world? Uh, Not at all. No, I mean, I, I, think, I think anything you pay attention to will become, can become marvelous. And it's, it's much more about human beings having the time to, to notice than the poor old nature itself is, 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 is full of glories. 
Yes. I mean, I whether, you're on, whether you're on the Summer Isles yes. or walking down a, a Drich Street in Edinburgh on a cold winter day, you know, Absolutely. there's always going to be something to look but at. Do, do you think many people have this view of nature as being disenchanted? I wouldn't speak for the rest of the world. Wouldn't I wouldn't speak for the rest of the world. My students are very ready to be re-enchanted, I would say that. I mean, I was teaching at a college called Williams College a couple of years ago, and I would give the students assignments like, please would you go for a two-hour walk this weekend and take a little notebook with you and write about what you see. And they would be utterly ready to be interested again. You know, even if they most spent most of their lives plugged into yes. machinery of various kinds. Okay. Um, geopoetics um, um, is uh, a way of cultural renewal, um, and to replace what Kenneth White uh, termed the outward, the outworn concepts of an overcoded world. Um, and his open world um, is based on a human relationship to the earth uh, within a framework of what he des describes as poetic intelligence, which is really an idea derived from Aristotle, the nous po poeticos, um, which is really an expanding of consciousness potential or as Thomas Clark said, uh, walking away from habitual concessions, habits of mind towards something else. And central to this idea, following on from Hölderlin and Heidegger, is that, is that of humans dwelling poetically on the earth. And in Scotland today, it seems to me that this is highly, it's hardly possible. Our society is enthralled with technology and economic growth, um, consumerism and commerce. What uh, Kenneth White describes as a diminished context. You just need to look out today at Edinburgh and you'll see diminished contexts everywhere. So do you think that then we need a new framework, a new metanoia, as it were, for dwelling poetically on the earth? I think I disagree with Kenneth White about the diminished context. Um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a, if anything, an over, 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 overly packed context. It's, a lot, it's, it's overwhelming context rather than diminished. Um, but I'm imagining he means a, a diminished in terms of access to nature and access to poetry and so forth. And quality of life. And quality of life. But actually, you know, there's a lot of good news about ordinary quality of life in terms of people having clothes and beds and, and just ordinary folk having, having more than, they, than their parents or grandparents had. So again, I'm, I'm leery of idealizing the past. Um, I'm not sure. I, 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 I disagree with him, but I don't know his work well enough to disagree uh, with, a, with it, a great focus yeah, here. I think he's referring to the, the, the increasing pace of modern life and 
and um, the pressures that are on people yeah. um, in terms of having to work longer hours, etc., the pressure from advertising and so on affecting the quality of the life. I think that's what he refers to as a diminished context. Well, my little, my little slogan in my book is refuse and choose. <laughs> um, and that is to say that, you, you, you know, some of us, we, we cannot get away from our computers any more than we can get away from our toothbrushes. I mean, we have to use them to conduct our lives. But you can say no. It's not as if you're obliged to watch a screen six or seven hours a day like, you know, the average American. Um, so then what do you do with the time that you salvage? You know, do you, can you go out on the hill in that time? Can you stand by a window and watch the full moon? Can you ha have a real conversation with your grandchild? There are, those are human choices. And I think it's, it's false to pretend that we're, we're just sort of sat upon by technology. You know, we're, we're smart animals. We can get out from under. Can I, su can I suggest we open up the discussion yeah. at this point? Um, yeah, because I've got one more question. Well, well, I think you should wait your turn, Bill, <laughs> um, and come back to that if we have time, because I think it would be useful at this point for other people to come in and, and ask questions and, and take up the points that they feel they want to take up. I think we've had a, a good opportunity there in your own behalf, Bill. Would you like to do um, Would you like to ask no, I'd like to ask others yes. to, to come in and, and, and ask a question or make a comment. Yeah. It's just a, a link. Yeah. Um, Can I just ask everybody to speak up a bit? Because yeah. the traffic noise is hard to hear. It's, it's just a link. Ben um, and Christian were talking about mindfulness mm. and attention. And it was, it was lovely because Robin, when she introduced this afternoon, was talking about coming from Glasgow on the train yeah. and she reached, I think it was Linlithgow and without, she was practicing mindfulness without actually realizing it, yeah. which was like, that was it. Yeah. It was not this um, very, very sort of um, focused attention that you're getting worked up yeah, about, yeah, yeah. wanting to ignore something right. that's perhaps disturbing you. Yeah. But she actually realised, oh, I didn't realise all that yeah, that's going that, on. That's lovely. And yeah. that, I think, it's being able to practice it without actually making a huge effort. Right. There's something right. magical about it. Yeah. 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 So I found yeah. that a lovely link. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thanks for pointing that out. crazy poems and they were sort of charming for about five minutes and you're never going to want to reread them. So I, I, I believe that it's worth taking the time to do the work well and that, that can feed people. Because that encourages a universal to a universal connection that other people can embrace. 
Space for the writer or the, the artist. I'm looking at this marvelous drawing up yeah. here. Just caught the amount of attention that must have gone into creating that drawing and and the practice of it. Yeah. Would, would you know that the person who made that must have spent a lot, given a lot of thought and time and practice yeah. into creating that yeah. that image. Yeah. There's a bit of attention from that into this whole thing about a sense of community and being involved in the community. Yeah. Um, to what extent do you um, do both, or do you opt out of the community yeah, side yeah. If, because otherwise you can't write the book or yeah. you, you can't do your teaching or whatever? It's an ongoing balancing act. Um, yeah. Solitude and company, writing and teaching, um, being, a, being just a person and being part of a, of a larger community. I mean, I'm part of a little Buddhist group that meets twice a month, for example. Um, I, 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 we do have a nuclear reactor in, <laughs> in our backyard, and I've shown up to several of those uh, protests and so forth. Um, but I think writing can, certain kinds of writing can also be seen as action. So, you know, when I talk about slowness, I think um, I'm, I'm, I feel strongly about that, and I want. I want that to be use, useful to people. Yeah, it can make a difference in the world. Yeah. The fact that you take right. your time to yourself and work with that yeah. and then put it out there yeah. can make a difference, you feel. And I, I do I teach writing workshops and so forth and sort of retreats and such. Um, like this, and in fact, um, just here's a moment for the plug. I've been teaching with a woman called ja Jan Kilpatrick on the island of Tanara, which is part of the Summer Isles, and we just did one of these week-long retreat, week retreats in July, and we'll be doing another one again 
third week of June, and I have Jan's card if people think they might be interested or have friends who might be interested. And I, people are very ready to have some time off and some time to stand and stare, to rejig their relationship to their own lives. So, please move. See the relationship between speed and pace and scale. Yeah. Because my sense is that the world is kind of in this relentless thing of growth. Yeah. Yeah. Bigger is better, and right. you know you kind of keep on getting bigger houses because you need to have another yeah. building case, you need something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I suppose and, and noise, in a sense, right. is a lot of things. Right. Yeah. Sort of yeah. scale. So, yeah. so, so the relationship between speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the one line answer is a quotation from a, the grandmother of a dear friend of mine, and she says, a little can be a lot if it's enough. <laughs> <laughs> and that applies to all three things, you know. So, you can have a wonderful conversation with the right friend in 40 minutes if you really give yourself to that conversation. You can be enchanted with a flower, you know, if with with the flower in a pot, if that's all you have, you know. Um, and I think we do need to learn to live with less and to find it sufficient on this overburdened planet. Yeah. Please. Um, I attended a, a writer's workshop recently under the title of Writers and the Social Media, right. which rather frightened me to death since I don't write about social media. Okay. But I really was a bit appalled by the emphasis on the need to communicate by these new technologies, which fine, except that the question was asked, how much time should we spend on doing this interacting by Facebook, by Twitter, and all the rest of it? These were all, were still relatively new words to me, I must say. And somebody actually said, well, we need at least 20% of your time should be engaged in this. So that left, theoretically, 80% of your professional yeah, yeah, yeah. time to do the actual writing. Yeah. And it's worrisome that yeah. when we talk about the speed of things, yeah. that people, even writers, felt the need. And we're not necessarily yeah. talking about non-fiction, we're talking about fiction writers yeah. of all gamut, that they're increasingly feeling the need to enter into this world which is taking up so much time and therefore is speeding up yeah, yeah, yeah. the requirement to respond to every comment. Um, and um, I just felt rather sort of disengaged yeah, yeah, from the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. I'm with you. I mean, apparently the average American spends more than an hour a day doing email. Um, and when I think how it used to be, for, a, for example, at the teaching uh, gig in Las Vegas or wherever else, they would send me a letter, I would respond, and there'd be maybe one follow-up phone call. Now, the email ping-pongs back and forth, and people think that because they have email, they can change every plan at the last possible minute. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. So they won't make a plan. <laughs> yes. So it's, it, it, it's a real issue. For myself, I try to... I mean, some people talk about taking one day a week when they don't do any of that, a kind of techno-sabbath. Um, I don't do email more than once a day myself, I mean, if I'm at home. I have to do it because it's the way I get work. Um, but I, I also print out long emails and try to answer them as letters. I don't immediately answer everything just because the requirement is there. 
but I think it's very addictive and seductive, and and, and this, the sense of urgency is, is actually a false one. But you're you're kind of bamboozled into thinking it's it's true that every message is important and must immediately be answered. Please, do you think that's about a sense of connection, or the need for a sense of connection, which actually isn't connection at all? Yeah. Well, it's tricky because I also know that, I mean, for example, I live in America, my brother's in, in the borders. Because we have email, we can gossip back and forth across the ocean about my little nieces and my nephew in a way that were we com 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 talking to each other via airmail, we, we wouldn't be doing that. So it's a, there's a joy to it. Um, but I would always choose to see somebody face to face rather than, you know, if that were possible. networks, I mean, I think you do best when you've met, I mean, I've met Naria, met, you, you, you want to, you want to have a human connection before the email connection rather than the other way around, I think, mm -hmm. if you possibly can. Well, art is a human connection. Right, so right. Create it or right. It, don't right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's complicated. I'm looking at the clock and I'm wondering, we, I know we have to be out of here by 3.30, so we should maybe do four or five more questions, yeah. so that there's time for books and hub yeah. and obbing and all of that. Um, does that sound right? Yeah, that yeah. sounds good. Okay, so let's say five more. <laughs> plus mine. Oh, <laughs> oh plus, 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 plus pills. Okay, all right. Yeah, don't want to deprive you. Please, uh, did you have one? No. We should do bills now. Okay. Yeah, all right, I'll do my best. Okay. Well, I'll just slip in another question about geopoetics. Okay. okay. But one of the criticisms that's laid against geopoetics is that it lacks a social dimension. And your work is very much concerned with a, a social dimension. So what I would like to know is how, uh, because uh, as I stated at the beginning, your, your book um, I think has a great relevance for people within the geopoetics group, how then um, do you see your work being integrated into the framework of geopoetics then? And if so, do you see your work in the in the context of renewal then? Well, I was thinking about that word <laughs> renewal, and I, I was thinking if there were a word that were re-oldal, that would be it. But in fact, what, a lot of what I'm doing in this book is returning to old ways of doing things yes. in terms of artists and writers and, you know, Rilke or Wordsworth or Coleridge or Robert Louis Stevenson or Hazlitt or whomever, and saying, hey, there's, there's, there's useful information to be found in those lives, um, in those anecdotes, those literary anecdotes. I'm, I'm actually adopting that term from Kenneth White. Yeah. It's set central to a lot of his work is cultural renewal, but particularly within the context of Scotland. Yeah. Uh, and so, so how... In a sense, my, my, I suppose the $64,000 question is, um, how would you, how would you advise uh, the Centre of Geopolitics? What sort of strategy would you encourage us to adopt then that would, that would open out into a much more social context then? Well, I, I, I don't think I'm the empress of, uh, of this answer. I mean, this, this, I, I don't feel big enough uh, 
a, a not big enough fish to pontificate about about this issue really. Um, but I do, I do. I do believe that you can do a great deal with, with work in the schools with children in terms of nature, nature education and in terms of literature and that that is, is sort of entering the geopoetics at the base level mm -hmm. and I think that what you then do up as you move up through, uh, through young adults and adults in terms of op practical opportunities to engage with the natural world mm -hmm. and to, to help people feel less foreign in it. I mean, what you're doing by the trip to the Isle of May or the bird watching along the, the, the coastline and all of that, those are real gifts to the community. Because people, people who, like, like my friend in New York who, who, who said, what is that thing over there on that stuff? People are, are ignorant, and when they're ignorant, they're frightened. So how can you open your knowledge to, to them? in a way that's sort of generous and encompassing. And recognizing the power of the opposition, which is the technology is tremendously seductive. Right. Oh. So that you, you think there is a political dimension to it as well then, you know, in terms of opposition to... One I, think it, I think would, it behooves... Would, would, would one should then adopt an apolitical life, as it were, and go I don't have a conspiracy <laughs> theory about sort of the opium of the masses, but I do mm. think that people are, are, are deeply beleaguered by what's going on. Yes, yes. And, you know, you kind of coax them out, mm. out into the green again, out into the green and the blue. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. Please. Referring to this subject, a few years ago I was working as a support worker yeah. with teenagers with behaviour problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, once a week we used to take the students on a visit, mm -hmm. um, mainly to buildings yeah. and museums, which was fine, but yeah. I asked the tutor, could we walk by a river yeah. or go to the beach, yeah, yeah. Um, which we started to do, yeah. and there was a transformation. Aww. The behaviour, everybody without them realising yeah. again, yeah. became much calmer. Some had never been to yeah. a beach before yeah. and collected driftwood mm. and shells yeah. and took them back to the unit within the college and yeah. worked a project around yeah. those things. Yeah. And it was really, it was just a wonderful experience to be in the middle of that happening. How wonderful. And yes, so it, it, it's links in yeah. that. something very yeah. simple. Yeah. First of all, the tutor thinking we won't handle this mm. was just you and me. Yeah. Um, my student was dead yeah. that I was particularly um, yeah. working with. But it, if you want to use the word worked, it yeah. worked. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he was amazed. Yeah, yeah. And also we had some First Nation Americans come over and they were making a totem pole for Kelty. Yeah. And we asked if we could visit the place where they were making yeah. it. And some of the students have had big problems, yeah. which frightened some yeah. people on the outside when we yeah. went for visits. But the First Nation people just passed their tools to the students. Yeah. And they just worked together. Yeah. Yeah. There was no fear. Yeah. This is another human being who's showing some interest. Yeah. And you can use my tools. How lovely. So it was very satisfying. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a real hunger for it, actually. I really mm. do. Yeah. So shall we call it a day?
Nobody has one uh, alarmingly pressing question or comment. Thank you. No, no, right, last question. It's not a question really. Or comment, just that, whatever. Just possibly slowness is one way of saying it. Yeah. And another way might be thoroughness. Yeah. yeah. Doing things thoroughly and not yeah. superficially, not rushing them. Doing them for their own sake and not to make money out of them. Yeah. Do it, that would be a sort of another word to use yeah. for that kind of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I mean, I think this, this, this plethora of seductive information can become very shallow. You know, there's always more on the horizontal level. And what is one of the things that about slowness is you go down, you go, it's a vertical uh, depth of engagement. Well, thank you very, very much, everybody, for coming. And we do have books, and we do have, you talk to Beal and talk to me and talk to Nari, and really many, many thanks. Thank you. Um, I just want to say a few words of thanks to you, Christian. Uh, Robin asked me to, and I was going to anyway. Um, but um, I noted down a few phrases that came that came up in the course of your, your talk. The empty spaces where art happens was one. A danger from speed and greed. And just to pick up that point that you, you finished on there, that people are, are trying to, and that Tessa's making, people are trying to sell something. That's why they're on social media a lot of the time, including a lot of writers, because it's to get, having done the book, they then want to get it out there. So I think there are good reasons why they're doing that, but it is about, as you said, about a, a state of balance. I also noted down the phrase, sounds that created music. And I, that's what I felt you've created today for us. Um, we had, we've had the, um, the madness out there. Some of us walked down or up the street here to yeah, get here. Yeah, yeah. And it was completely crazy. And I thought, an oasis of peace is what we're going to get this afternoon. And I think that's what we've had. Yeah. Um, it was so beautiful to hear you reading from the book. Um, and I was particularly encouraged when you said that, um, what was it, multitasking, most of us can't. Well, I feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been told that I can't. And now I feel, well, it's okay then. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> all those men are all feeling a lot better about that now. And, um, but I, I, I just feel, when I read, read your book, um, I just couldn't get enough of it. I, um, it. It wasn't just the ideas in the book and all the references um, that you make, you know, all your the width and the depth of your reading that's gone into this book, but the way you've related your personal experiences, your, your life and as a child and your, your, your love and, and, and loss and all of those things that come through the book, it's a really beautifully written book and I, I can't recommend it highly enough, I really can't. And that's why I wanted the Scottish Centre for Geopoetics to have, this, have your say yeah. here in Edinburgh at the height of the festival because I just feel this is a message that has to be got out here. Um, and it's a book that has to be read. I understand that you know it's only published in America, so if there are any publishers here, please form an orderly <laughs> queue at the back to get it published in the UK. Um, and there are one or two, I think, who, who are interested. So let's hope that happens. But um, so I think it's been a, a wonderful experience for me to and hopefully I think from the audience I feel that's the same 
for you uh, in coming today. And I, I hope you will go and buy the book and that you'll you know, talk to, to Christian afterwards. And that you know, some of us will maybe go on to a quiet pub somewhere <laughs> we can find one, or a courtyard or something, and continue our, our, our discussion with you. I know you're here in Edinburgh for a, a little bit of time. And I would strongly advise, if you can get to any of these workshops on the 1st of September and the 5th of September, please do. But would you like to join me again in thanking Christian and thanking the lady for her contribution.
two mistakes I found in the last 24 hours. I've been sent a book by one of these Amazon types of and it's called Inside Track in a Shop. I can't imagine why. I never ordered it. But it's all about it. American towns and the best places to shop in the world. And that's right up your street. Just just accepting what I want to focus on. The difficulty of texting these people and saying, what are you do with this message? And then you can charge me for your
Dus we komen zo weer te leven.
that, that's my fine part. Yeah. I didn't think it would be I thought it would be very good. Or the organizations which have got a similar sort of ethos, starting out with higher ideals, and then finding that they're reducing the numbers of the